Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at Audio. And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never, ever charge you for this podcast. And I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is literally one of my favorite mixers on earth right now. His name is Jay Rustin, and his body of work is just ridiculously great. He has spanned multiple genres, and he's made records for some of the greatest bands and artists, including Diana Ross, Anthrax, Steel Panther, Stone Sour, Bowling for Soup, Avatar, Amana Marth, Cataclysm, and many, many more. I'm going to shut up now. Let's get started. Well, Jay Rustin, welcome to the URM podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that uh, we could work this out. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on for a while. I've been following your work for years now, so it's, uh, it's cool to have you on. Thanks for taking the time. How's this corona situation going for you? Pretty good, to be honest. When it first started early March, at least here in Los Angeles, I had just finished, well, not just finished, but I had basically the end of January, I finished recording the new Avatar record. We had done a month in LA in December, which was a first for them to record outside of Europe. And then I did two weeks or three weeks in Helsinki in January with the singer who lives there to do vocals because we recorded the, the whole album live. Uh, in Burbank and then overdubbed all the vocals. Live as in everybody playing at the same time in the room? Yes, and we kept everything. Awesome. And we recorded on tape, so that that's a very long <laughs> story, but I'll, I'll finish the Corona bit first. So basically, I finished tracking their record, took a little break, did the whole Nam thing, and then I had basically a month or six weeks to mix the record, which I really wanted to just take my time on it. So when the Corona thing kicked in, it was like, oh, well, I'm mixing anyway. And first, it just sort of felt pretty normal to me. And I finished that by, you know, mid-April. And yeah, it was just sort of a strange thing to not feel that different. And But at the same time, seeing all my friends completely suffering and be miserable, especially my touring friends, like it's just been devastating. So yeah, absolutely. At first, it didn't affect me too much, but it's affecting everybody that I work with and love. And it's just, it's brutal, but yeah. So yeah, that, that's exactly how I feel. Part of me feels a little bit guilty because we weren't affected by it at all. Actually, 
URMs grown, which makes sense because people are home. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And, you know, the phone's definitely been ringing to do more recording and whatnot this summer. So I'm happy and excited to be able to work. I just wish that a lot of other people in the music industry could come back sooner than later. Yeah, I, I don't think they're going to be able to tour till next year. Looks like it. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But I do think that once things get going again, it's going to be an explosion of work, basically. It's going to be a little crazy. Yeah, I think yeah. people need to be prepared for that, which is good. I mean, you know, it'll come back and I think people will, I, I think music fans in general clearly want to get out and go to shows now and maybe that's not the best idea, but I don't know. You know, I'm not a... I'm not a scientist, so I'm just kind of relying on on them to tell me what's best to do. So I'm not listening to anything I hear on the news. I'll just I ask doctors and if they say it's cool, then I'm cool with it. But I feel like paying attention to the news is just asking to get pissed off and misinformed. Yeah, I agree. The thing is, how different is your life though? with this mine's like pretty much identical minus the travel yeah i you know i work from home a lot my mixing studio is is in my backyard so and you know i have a bunch of dogs and they're all seniors so you know a quarter of my day is taking care of them anyway and then you know i get to work around noon or one every day and work till 11 or 12 at night take you know a dinner break or something and enjoy my little kind of compound here in the city. So you're right, it's it's not that different if I'm not producing a record. And I do a lot of mixing, probably 75% of my year is mixing, and I'll produce one or two or three records a year, which takes up you know the other quarter of the time. So I think that it's fairly consistent you know it's just it's what I do and I'm alone a lot anyway working so but I do miss you know meeting up with friends in in the city and other music industry people going to shows and and traveling for sure sometimes I travel to make records is that ratio of mixing to production was that kind of the goal eventually or did you start doing more production I started doing production mostly producing and sometimes mixing my own stuff in when I was in Canada in the early years. But when you're younger and you're starting out and a lot of times someone else ends up mixing it or the threat of someone else ending up mixing it is always there. But as I got more experienced and got older and got better at mixing, I definitely focused on mixing, if that's your question, because I wanted to be great at mixing and I wanted to not have albums taken to somebody else and then listen to them back and be disappointed and which would happen on you know on a few occasions so but luckily I in my early days I didn't have that happen too often and then I got to the point where just I always mixed everything I did and by the time I moved to LA in 2002 I think I was mixing everything I was doing anyway and so then for about 3 or 4 years in LA when I was working under other producers I would do a lot of mixing and and you learn how to get better much quicker in a heavy environment like Los Angeles than say in small town Canada. So for about 10 years, I really mixed more than anything, probably 90%. And then I started producing more and then it got almost to be like 50-50 where I was like half the year producing and then of course mixing those projects and then mixing other people's records as well that I didn't produce. And it just sort of depends on the year, to be honest. Like the last couple of years, I've been producing a lot and maybe that ratio has, has lowered down to like 50-50. But you know, in general, over the last decade or 15 years, 
definitely been a little heavier on the mixing side. And, and I love mixing. It's, you know, definitely something I focused on and wanted to really try and be great at. But producing is, a, it's, they're very different jobs. And, you know, it's like one is a brain surgeon and one is a, a, a somebody painting a picture. Like, they're just so different. And, but so I like to be able to flip those hats. And I also like to do different genres of music. That's actually one thing I wanted to ask you about because you do so many different genres of music from death metal to pop to rock to whatever. Like, do you get into a different headspace like when you're working on Cataclysm versus Diana Ross? Or do you just approach it the same way? I really don't because it depends on what I'm doing in those jobs. Like Diana Ross record, I was working under a producer named Peter Asher, who is a legendary guy. He worked with the Beatles as kind of running Apple Records, and he discovered James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt. So working under guys like that is a very old school approach, which is extremely valuable. So you learn how to set up a whole band and make a record in one day because the band comes in with charts. It's like sort of a Nashville kind of thing. So in that case, you're basically working for a producer trying to make them happy and you just want everything to sound great and I think great engineering can be applied to any genre of music and if I'm trying to make an Amonomarth record and get great vocals out of Johan I'm also trying to do the same thing when I'm working with Wilson Phillips it's it's sort of this it's the same process the same coaching the same try to get the best out of them as possible the engineering might be slightly different. The tones obviously are different, but it's you're still trying to make a piece of art that the artist is in love with that you also think everybody else listening to it will love. That makes sense. Speaking of small town Canada, what is up with the amount of awesome producers that come out of Canada? <laughs> There's quite a bit. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I love them all too. Like my mentor early on was Jack Richardson who did all the guess who stuff. And then of course his and mm -hmm. Alice Cooper and he discovered Bob Ezrin, another Canadian producer. And then of course Jack's son, Garth Richardson, who did Rage Against the Machine and all that stuff. And then you have the West Coast guys like Randy Staub and Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock, of course. It's just crazy. And now you've got the Churcos, of course. So it's yep. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And there's lots of Canadian producers that stayed in Canada and have amazing careers there that a lot of people around the world aren't necessarily aware of. And then you have like superstar guys like Daniel Lanois that just, you know, are on a whole other stratosphere of, of everybody else. What do you think it is about Canada that pumps that kind of talent out? Because I know what you mean about LA kind of being a pressure cooker in that if you don't get good, you're not going to survive and you're going to have to leave basically or just quit. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, like there's, you, you in LA, either you get good or you're waiting tables forever or you, you leave. Canada, from what I understand, doesn't have that kind of pressure to it. It's much more of a chill place from my experience. What do you think it is that fosters that kind of, talent because that's a lot for the population density that's a lot of great talent yeah if you think about like australia or south africa or places like that of 
you know, you got Kevin Shirley coming out of Australia, Mutt Lang out of South Africa. England, of course, has pumped out, obviously, hundreds of amazing producers, you know, some of the greatest of all time, Martin Birch and George Martin and people like that. Canada, I don't know what it is. I think that maybe it's the underdog thing. And it's the same with music that comes out of Canada. The bands in Canada that become successful become incredibly successful, like Alanis or Nickelback or Rush or Neil Young. I mean, it just Celine Dion. They become like superstars. So it's a strange thing. And then the artists in Canada that don't become superstars are still pretty damn big on their home turf, like the tragically like hit Devin or Townsend. Devin, exactly. People like yeah. that who, or they become really big overseas and aren't really well known in Canada, or just didn't like Danko Jones. He's huge and amazing in Europe, and but it doesn't get a whole lot of love in Canada, which bums me out, but, you know, he's great. It's kind of an interesting thing. I always wonder if there's something in the water, kind of like in Sweden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like the ratio of awesome musicians and producers to the population is really, really high. And then if you compare it to the other Scandinavian countries, it's not like there's no talent there. There's some great producers and great bands, but there's something about Sweden where... There's just a lot more of them. Sweden's a magical place. Yeah, it's. I love going there. I love working there. I love the bands. I love the attitude. It's just a great place. My family history is from Sweden as well, so I feel very connected when I'm there. Sometimes I blame it on the weather, you know, that, that six months <laughs> of dark and cold. It just makes people be creative. It certainly would explain all the creativity that came out of England and Birmingham, especially in the metal scene. And Canada, too. But how does that explain all the amazing stuff that came out of California? You know, the weather's perfect all the time. So maybe it isn't a weather thing, but certainly in those places, it might be, you know. How did you end up going to L.A.? What led you to leave your gig in Canada and give the L.A. thing a shot? I sort of have a strange connection to Alanis Morissette, and I've never even met her. I was working, after I finished college and mentoring under Jack Richardson, I moved to a city called Ottawa because a studio there that was pretty much the only really pro studio in that, in that city was looking for a house engineer, basically somebody just to record whatever comes through the door. And it was owned mm -hmm. by a guy named Leslie Howe. And Leslie had discovered Alanis when she was 16 and did her two dance pop records in Canada that were platinum in Canada and nobody in America knew she even existed. She left Canada, came to L.A., wrote with hundreds of people, and finally her and Glenn Ballard make Jagged Little Pill and she becomes you know, a worldwide phenomenon. Except that she owed that guy in Canada two more records on her record deal with him. So he had a very small piece of Jagged Little Pill and did pretty well financially. And uh, he decided to move to L.A. and build a studio in Studio City. And he reached out to me after being down here for a few years and said, you know, instead of hanging out in Ottawa recording bands, you know, that aren't, worldwide phenomenon once you come to LA and <laughs> give it a shot and and I loved my time working at that studio and all the bands were amazing but yeah it's hard when you're in a small town like that and when I say small a million people but it's like it's not the same as America or London England it's just it's and I wasn't in Toronto and Toronto had become a very sort of hipster scene which just wasn't the kind of music I wanted to record and I just sort of dropped everything and said yeah let's just give this a shot and so I moved to Studio City and got a work visa through the studio and uh, just started recording whatever came through the door just like I did in Canada and 
you just the thing about LA and probably Nashville and New York and play anywhere where there's a music hub is you just start immediately meeting people and they connect you to somebody who then connects you to somebody who then connects you to somebody. It's really incredible how that works. And I can trace like all the great records and great happenings and meetings down to like one or two people who were very helpful to me early on when I was in LA and introducing me and it's it's pretty amazing. I, I was very lucky and fortunate to just meet lots of great people. That's actually the part of succeeding at something that I do consider luck. I'm not like one of those luck dudes. I think you kind of make your own luck, but there is a luck factor and it's generally who you happen to meet Correct. and what their headspace is at at that point in time and whether or not they feel like connecting you to somebody. That's the luck factor. Well, the first question I asked Kevin Churko when I met him, and he's an awesome guy, I really enjoy talking to him, was how did you meet Mutt Lang and how did you get that gig? Because he basically came from the same place I did, opposite side of Canada, but small town, small city, recording whatever came through the door. He was basically recording Christian rock bands. And his brother got the gig playing guitar for Shania. Mutt's engineer wasn't working out. Boom, there's the connection. It's like, you just never know what's going to happen. And, you know, so then, of course, he moves to Switzerland and starts working with Mutt for many years. And, you know, Kevin then becomes a world-renowned producer. So it's just, like you said, right place at the right time, being good at what you do, having a good attitude, you know, schmoozing and getting out. Just talking to people is so effective, especially in this city. The idea is to set the stage for which opportunities can take place in, because obviously there's no way to really force them to happen. But the more people you meet, the more involved you are with people, the greater the likelihood is that something will come together, especially if, like you said, you know what you're doing and do a good job and people like you. I think a lot of people get that side of it wrong in the socialization part in that they try to force things too much. And what I've noticed is that it mainly just comes from not necessarily always being friends with everybody, but being friendly with most people and having just friendly, good, casual relationships with a bunch of people uh, that aren't really goal-oriented relationships. It's not like I meet this person and hoping to get something out of them. It's just meet this person and be cool and maybe in a few years something will happen. Well, that's a good attitude to have and I've I've had that attitude since I came to LA and some of the relationships and people that I work with were 10 years in the making. You know, certainly my relationship with Corey Taylor went over a decade, you know, from really from the first time that I met him to actually working with him was maybe about 6 or 7 years, but you know, it's just you just never know how those things are going to are going to happen. So, you just meet people and someday your paths may cross again. I can tell you that some of the most successful relationships or deals that I've made or whatever have been with people that I've known about that long. It's always been like people that I met in the early 2000s and we were just kind of friends, fell out of touch, got back in touch, things happened. And then eventually there was just an opportunity that made sense for us to collaborate on. It's very rarely ever been from that scenario like at NAM, where you get introduced to somebody right away and then something awesome happens right away. Like that's, that's not my experience at all. No, no, it's always a long build. Yeah, that's, that's why I try to tell people who are trying to get in that the, I mean, obviously skills aside, they have to have an insane amount of patience. 
Absolutely. Oh, I, I've actually met many engineers that were honestly quite average at their job, but they were so easy to work with and so good with the clients that as long as they're willing to learn or you know, try something new, I was more than happy to try and improve their situation. Whereas I've worked with engineers that were absolutely brilliant at getting tones, but just had horrific bedside manner. And it's just, you know, what's more important? And I'm, you know, I'll take the personality (laughs) nine times out of 10. You know, uh, lots of people who have come on the podcast have said the exact same thing, I guess, because you can teach skills. Skills are learnable, but the, the, the human part of it is, uh, that's a tough one. You can't really teach somebody how to just be a normal, good person. It's, you know, by, by the time they're in their 20s, 30s, or 40s, that ship has sailed. So it's, you just have to, you know, hope if, yeah, you find somebody that's good with people and, and session etiquette and all that, then yeah, you just, you train them. So on that topic, and I'm not saying this so that people hit you up. So people listening, do not hit Jay up about this. I'm just curious when you're looking for like an assistant or an engineer or an intern, what, what are the kinds of things that actually get them through the door with you or get you to actually give it a go? What I normally do is I work with, I work alone here at my studio and for any like editing or sort of chop shop stuff I need to do. I, I farm some of that out to a couple different people. So I never really have anybody sitting next to me or in my room prepping mixes or anything. I've always just worked alone. But when I'm recording a record, I rely on the studio engineer and very rarely do I, who that engineer is, do I get to make that choice. First of all, budgets just aren't what they were. So I don't bring my own engineer with me too often. Once in a while, I get that opportunity, and it's fantastic. And you know, I'll have two or three guys that I'll I, I can lean on for that. And I like to split the work up a little bit, keep everybody busy if possible. Here in LA, there's two studios that I use a lot, and they both have fantastic in-house engineers. So I know what I'm getting and who I'm dealing with, and that's that's great. Overseas, obviously, it's a different story. You just you show up if the person's great they're great if they're not you just deal with it you know and if i could bring my engineer everywhere around the world with me i would and you know maybe someday the music business will allow that but at this time i think it's you know somewhat cost prohibitive to for two people to be traveling around at least in the the budget uh range that i work with but my favorite engineers i just sort of repeat what i said earlier are great at what they do but also just great with people and you know, I have an engineer that I use in Burbank. He's French, English from, you know, he worked at Sphere in the UK and he's at Sphere in Burbank now and he's fantastic. He's too quiet. I have to beg him to speak. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes you get assistants that are too chatty and throw their opinion out to the artist, which, you know, might not that be welcome. Um, depends who the artist is, of course. But I'm just old enough where I grew up in the old studio atmosphere where the assistant sat in the corner and kept his mouth shut and ran the tape machine and plugged cables in and just literally was running the whole day, never stopping. And the producer and the engineer were at the desk and that was it. And then obviously all that's changed, you know, with once Pro Tools came in and once budgets, you know, were cut to 10% of what they used to be, all that kind of stuff changed. So 
I'm lucky that I'm young enough that I could I learned all the new way of recording, but I'm old enough that I also witnessed and worked quite heavily in the old system as well. So I'm just at that perfect age. Do you have a preference? Well, like I was telling you earlier with Avatar recording on tape, tape has its benefits and I will only use tape on specific bands that I think it's will help. And with them they basically told me that three records ago, which was the Hail the Apocalypse record, which was actually the first time I ever worked with them, they had recorded that record in Thailand. Man, that bass tone is ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's something else. So the producer, Tobias Lindell, who makes plugins, he had done that record and they recorded that fully live. Some of the songs were like 30 takes. And they really wanted to just record the band live and they rehearsed and rehearsed and just went nuts nailing it. Overdubbing guitar solos and vocals, of course, but just the, the core track. So then they did a couple records where they didn't do that and kind of, you know, do the drums, overdub the bass, overdub the guitars, blah, blah, blah. And when we came, and I had mixed basically three in a row for them and, and some production as well. So when it came to this new record, they were pretty adamant about wanting to go back to that Haley Apocalypse vibe of nailing, you know, a best one or two or three takes and may, maybe comping those together a little bit, like use a bridge here or a chorus there, but no real heavy editing or anything like that. And no click on a lot of it as well. And then we just, you know, we create a click tempo map after the fact to the band's tempo. And so it was a real treat to make a record like that because they rehearsed for about a month, eight hours a day in Sweden, <laughs> um, like all good Swedes do. And showed up in Burbank ready to go. And man, it was it was such a pleasure. I think we did the whole thing in less than three weeks. And the way I make records is I do one song at a time. I basically, you know, we start at noon and by four or five PM we have the basic track, you know, gu guitars, bass and drums, whether it's live or some overdubs or some fixes, and then uh, we start in on uh, vocals and background vocals. And if we have time, we'll hit the guitar solos, or maybe we'll save those for another day. But then when we come in the next day or a day and a half later, we start a new song. I really like to just focus on the song, because I find when you track drums for a week and then bass for four days and then guitars for a week, it just... I get bored, and I think the musicians get bored, and people tend to re be repetitive with the ideas they interject, and you sort of forget, well, did we, what did we do in this song or that song? I, it just, it was never appealing to me because that's not how records were made for 50 years. Records were made the other way where you just finish a song and then, you know, finish another song. And then, but all that change with digital where it was like, oh, we can spend weeks just on the guitar and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like we got away from making records that way, which makes it a, a little less creative, I think, in some ways, um, and a little too perfect. So, And when you hear the new Avatar record, it sounds tight and the band's great, but it doesn't sound like it's a perfectly chopped and edited record covered in drum samples. It just doesn't, because that's not what we did. So, And that's what the band wants, and that's what I like to do. And, you know... My idol is Martin Birch, and those Iron Maiden records sound like a band playing in a studio, which is exactly what it was. And I try and make a more modern version of that. When a band says that they want to do that, though, 
does it scare you ever as in just because so many bands can't? Sure. Yeah. I mean, not, not everybody can do that. Yeah. I mean, and I'm lucky that I, and maybe it's just the bands that gravitate towards me or vice versa, but I recorded Stone Sour that way. I recorded Steel Panther, Black Star Riders, Uriah Heep, Avatar, even Amon Amarth, we tracked the whole band live, which they hadn't done ever, I don't think. And then we just fixed what needed to be fixed. And that was an extremely technical record. So obviously we focused more in on overdubbing some of the more intricate guitar parts. But I remember the guitar player turning to me and saying, wow, like hearing drums in a room next to me in a studio, it's, it's been a long time. You know, I think people just get locked into a way of doing things and that's fine. It doesn't mean that the other way isn't successful. Obviously it is. But, you know, it's just how I like to work. But yeah, there's certain bands that probably can't do it and that sometimes it's not because of their ability it's the style of music like could an extremely technical death metal band do it i don't know <laughs> maybe if they rehearsed for two months straight and like a or maybe. like <laughs> literally walked off stage off with you know three months of touring playing those new songs every night sure but nobody does that so that's that's tough but when it's rock and roll and i make a lot of straight up rock and roll records where you know it's not that crazy technical. It's much easier. And the, all the country stuff I've done over the years, yeah, it's all live. Speaking of rock and roll, I've noticed that your mixes kind of have like a rock sound, even on the extreme metal side of things. Like they have the clarity of rock records. They're still heavy as fuck, but they have like a rock sensibility to them, which I think is really cool. Like that Cataclysm, for instance, it doesn't sound like one of those scooped ass death metal records. It sounds kind of like a rock band playing death metal, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I don't know how to do the other thing you're mentioning. And the guys that can do that, I, I, I get envious of because I listen to their stuff and I'm like, I don't even know how to get some of those sounds and maybe some of it samples and some of it's in the editing. But yeah, I, I guess that's maybe because of my age or whatever. It, it's hard for me to to make a record that really sounds like that, I suppose. I just, maybe it's just what I, I always go to live amps. I use a lot of old Marshalls and Plexis and things like that. But then usually the guitar players on the more metal stuff will bring in more modern amps. And then for me, that's a learning experience too, because I can just see what they sound like and then, but then turn them on to some of the older stuff. And with the Monomarth, we used a brand new Hughes and Kettner, which had that really scooped heavy sound, but then we blended it with a Marshall Jubilee that we rented, which actually belonged to Dave Murray from Iron Maiden. So it gave us a very unique guitar sound. We got the clarity in the notes from the Jubilee, but we got the heaviness from the Hughes. Do you ever find that the bands that come to you, they're coming to you because of what you do? Like they wouldn't come to you if they wanted that thing that you just said that you don't really do. Do you find that typically they're coming to you because of that rock-ish kind of sound that you bring to the table? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've had a lot of bands come to me wanting that sound and then realizing that it might not work for them. We all do test mixes. We all try working with bands. I think I've test mixed for Killswitch Engage two or three times now and never, ever got the gig. And it was always the same response from the band, like, we love it, it's great, but Andy Sneap does exactly what we want. I'm like, great, use Andy because he fucking rules. Like, you know, 
they shouldn't bother going to me because Andy's going to nail it. You know what I mean? So that happens. And even Cataclysm, I think at first they might have been a little taken aback by how the mix sounded, but they were pretty adamant that they wanted it to sound like their band, you know, like how would they would sound live, I suppose. And I think we did it. And at the time, they seemed to be happy, whether they still are. I don't know. I haven't talked to them in a while. So, But, you know, I think, uh, yeah, bands certainly go to me because they decide, okay, we've done this, we've tried that, let's let's go and try something like that with him. And it doesn't always work out, you know? I mean, I think years ago when I was doing an Anthrax record, the Shadows Fall guys hit me up to mix a song, and same thing, they they heard it and they were like, yeah, it sounds good, but it's it's not what we're looking for, and that's fine, you know? It's just not us. Yeah, I get it. It's, you know, it's it's not always that thing so and sometimes i just say no i'm like i'm definitely not the person for this and they're like no no please please and i'm like trust me <laughs> you you, <laughs> you think you want that but by listening to your previous catalog i can really tell you don't unless you absolutely despise what you've done up to this point i can't see why you'd want to make such a drastic sound change you know was it harder for you to say that when you were younger like is that like confidence with age sort of thing yeah, when you're younger, you just say yes to everything, which is a smart thing to do because I made opera records, I made uh, Christian church op- uh, choir records. You know, you just doing all those different weird things really helps you learn the craft of record making and engineering. I made a record with a Canadian band called Junkyard Symphony where every instrument was junk. He literally made instruments out of garbage. <laughs> actually, and it's, like actually junk. Yeah, and it was fascinating. because, And he was a genius because we would take a weird instrument and he would make a loop and then he'd, he'd just keep making loops and he would build notes out of it and chords and it was, I mean, I learned more probably in three weeks of recording garbage than I did, <laughs> you know, on many other records. So it was a pretty fascinating experience. And it, it taught me how to like, that was in mid to late 90s. So it taught me really how to u- utilize MIDI and loops. And back then we were using outboard samplers and you had to trigger sample loops with MIDI notes and nothing like now. And, you know, then bounce it to the tape and hope it all lined up and synced up. You know, that's another thing that I tell up and comers is don't be choosy. Like, I feel like being able to say no and having more of a choice over who you work with is is something to aspire to. Correct. It's something that you build towards. But at the beginning of your career, I think that it's, it's almost suicidal to say no to projects before you've even developed your own sensibilities, your own tastes, your own sound to just say no because you happen to be a fan of a certain style or something. Yeah, I mean, if I would have only, you know, growing up, I only listened to, you know, metal. I listened to Iron Maiden, Pantera, Metallica, and then some more rock stuff, obviously, Van Halen, Led Zeppelin, Sabbath, of course. But if I only wanted to record those types of bands, I'd probably be in my parents' basement. You know, it's just, it. you have to learn how to do other things and that's where you learn everything is working with working with something you don't understand and with somebody who knows a hell of a lot more than you and that's why mentors are are super important and it's harder these days because everybody's at home alone you know they're just yep. in their cave and but youtube has sort of become the mentor and you know, all the different online stuff, the mix with the masters and all that kind of thing, what you guys are doing, it, it just 
that's basically how a kid in the middle of nowhere is going to have a real mentor is he's going to, I didn't have any of that. I would literally have to read Mix Magazine to figure out how Andy Wallace had his SSL bus compressor set, if they even told that secret, you know? Yeah, that, that's kind of the whole idea with URM is uh, with the big studio industry kind of not existing the way it used to. I think the opportunities for mentorship in real life are, they're just not what they used to be. And not only that, I also remember trying to find information on how to make heavy records. And it was like having to be like a forensic detective or something. Yeah, I just wanted to help fill that gap a little bit for people. I still think that nothing replaces in person. Yeah. And I'm saying that owning an online platform and as much as I believe in it, I still think that there's a limitation. Like you can only go so far online. You got to do this shit in real life. And if you can get a real mentor in real life, even better. Well, it's like any recording school is going to teach you the technical basics. And even as great as my school was and as great as the teachers were and the teachers at the school I went to, it was the only one in Canada at the time in the early 90s. And they had all made hit records, which I isn't as prevalent these days in a lot of these recording schools. So I was very lucky. But again, a year out in the field working for real, that's where you really learned. And you applied those technical things you learned from school, but you learn how to make records making records. So speaking of making records and making all different kinds of records, how did you uh, make sure that your vision was aligned with the artist, especially when you're doing oddball shit like the garbage album or an opera record or next day a death metal record like how how do you make sure that you're aligned i just ask them a lot of questions really and it's getting into their head and just finding out exactly what they're trying to achieve and usually they have a record that they love that they reference all the time oh i this record speaks to me and it might not even be the sound it might be the feeling or the vibe it gives them. And that's very helpful. I think Johannes from Avatar sent me a playlist of about 100 songs before we made this record because I really want to get inside his brain on this record. 100 songs? That's It was just this killer Spotify playlist, songs he grew up on, and it was everything from Swedish death metal to, you know, kind of English goth rock. And, you know, I helped introduce him into like, you know, British New Wave and things like that because a lot of the stuff he was doing was reminding me of like Peter Murphy or Bauhaus or Psychedelic Furs. Like he has this like kind of baritone Peter Steele-esque voice if he wants to. And I, I didn't know if he had even been exposed to that kind of music and he really hadn't. So it was sort of, I guess maybe he was getting it out of like being a huge typo negative fan. But Peter Steele was listening to 80s goth music, you know? So you can always keep tracing it backwards. So that was very helpful listening to what he listened to growing up, some of which I was very familiar with and some of which I wasn't familiar with at all. I did not grow up listening to death metal and certainly not Scandinavian death metal. So I learned a lot about all those bands and that kind of music and what... Mostly it was like an energy. He'll play, he'd play me a record by The Haunted and say... 
this isn't necessarily the best sounding record, but man, when I put it on, I just want to break shit and like go nuts. And mm. I got that totally when I would hear the song. I'm like, okay, now I understand what you're hearing in this. And so that was all really helpful. And same goes for every other style of music. I, I usually ask for references, like what, what records do you love? What would you like this to sound like? And that can sometimes be silly because you're never going to sound like that band you know i heard a great story of steve stevens billy idol's guitar player he went into compass point in the bahamas to record a record in 1982 or something and acdc had just finished back in black at that studio and the engineer played him a couple of the rough mixes and steve was like wow we're gonna sound just like that and of course they didn't they <laughs> no, said <you're> <laughs> they sounded like shit because that was acdc and mutt lang and he was in this new band and you know they just he was like, oh, okay, now I get it. You know, it's about practice and playing and writing great songs and having a great producer. I think I read Bob Rock say that after the Black Album, everybody wanted that. Even like pop rock bands wanted to sound like the Black Album. It's like, it's not going to happen. You're not Metallica. No. It's funny, though. He did spread that snare drum across first the Cult, then Dr. Feelgood, then the Black Album. It's literally the same snare sound. It's a good one. It is. But it's funny, you know? So have you ever had this scenario where, okay, you're asking for a reference and uh, the band gives you something that is just so not what they're about? Like, it's a pop rock band and they give you a Slipknot record. We want to sound like this, but it's like, you can't sound like that. Do you ever have that sort of scenario where the vision is kind of... 100%. Yeah, well, how do you deal with that? Well, I'll give you a perfect example, actually. I did a Meatloaf record with Desmond Child producing. You know, they had brought Jim Steinman back to write all the songs who wrote all the best Meatloaf songs. It was it was the Bad Out of Hell 3 record, I think, in like 2005. And we were at a big, beautiful studio, and we had these amazing session players. We were recording live. Everybody's going to tape. It was just, you know, fantastic. And we get to this song that they had co-written with John Five, and I think maybe even Nikki Six or something, and Desmond puts on a Slipknot song and plays it for a bunch of these country guys, and <laughs> we're kind of listening to it, and I'm familiar with it, I know the record, and they're just all kind of going, why are we listening to this? But he was playing it for them, and I thought this was brilliant, because he wanted them to understand aggression, and he's like, I know this doesn't sound anything like Slipknot, and we're doing a meatloaf record. He goes, but <laughs> listen to what this band is doing. And it worked. Like the drummer went out and he was hitting harder and he was pushing the time rather than like laying back. And it was a really interesting experiment. You know, obviously that's not the artist bringing me something, but it was just an example of how something completely out of left field can make you look at something a little differently. And yeah, sometimes a band will bring me a reference and I'll be like, well, you know, you're playing me an orange and you're asking for an apple, so I'm not exactly sure how we're going to go about that. But then I try and dig in a little more and figure out why they like that. And sort of like with, with Johannes and playing me The Haunted or something similar, he didn't want his record to sound like that, but he wanted his record to make him feel like that. So I had to figure out how the hell to do that. <laughs> it's kind of like basically being a translator. Basically, yeah, and, you know, psychiatrist, yeah. translator, you know, mind reader. <laughs> Speaking of Avatar, I have to ask you, what is up with the bass tone on Hail the Apocalypse? Like, how did that even happen? That bass tone is insane. Well, 
With most records, I treat the bass pretty similarly in that if they give me a DI and a bunch of amps, most of the time the amps don't sound that good. They have like weird low, mid, mud, or they're distorted too much, or they're just farting out wrong mic on the speaker, whatever. There's usually impossible to get in phase, you know, all, all kinds of issues. Or they'll do a DI and then they'll reamp it seven times and give me like all these different weird sounding bass amps, none of which are useful. Not that that happened with that, but basically from what I... Well, that's what typically happens. Typically, very often, yeah. With that record in particular, I remember a fairly simple setup coming in. It was a DI and an amp. And he plays Spectre basses, which are great. So usually what I would do, especially back then before the Dark Glass bass plugin came, I would use the Sansamp plugin on the DI and just add some distortion and usually add about 12 or 15 dB at 1K <laughs> just to get like that <laughs> gnarly grind. And then I'd shave off the top end down to like 4K or something, like pretty steep curve so it doesn't get all clacky. And he plays with fingers so it can be clacky. But most likely that's probably what I did and then favored that DI over the amp and maybe just use the amp for bottom end really pretty simple approach, which means that Very the playing had to be right on. He's a fantastic musician, and you know that's really what makes the difference. And I did something very similar on the first Stone Sour record I mixed, which is the House of Golden Bones record. They use Rachel Bolin from Skid Row on bass, because their bass player had left, and they made the record basically without a bass player. So they had him come in and play the bass, and I had no idea what an incredible bass player that guy is. And plays with a pick, has like a, I don't know, a 69 or 1970p bass, walked in, plugged in, and David Bottrell was producing and captured a great DI and then sent me like seven amps. And I just, none of it was really working. So I literally muted all the amps. I threw the Sans amp on the DI, put a bit of distortion on it, cranked up the mid-range. And I remember Monty Connor calling me and going like, holy fuck, how did you get that bass sound? I'm like, I didn't. I literally just turned up the DI with a little <laughs> Sam Zanton, and that's that's Rachel, you know? It just sounded amazing, and but it really comes down to the player and the groove and simplicity. I take a very simplistic approach to the bass, but if you're going for a really extreme distortion or something, that can be a little trickier. One of my tricks when I record bass is a clean DI, a nice mic'd up amp at a very low volume, usually a guitar amp, like a small clean high watt or a clean Marshall at low volume. And then I'll use a very small, heavily distorted guitar amp with like a 57 on it that's just literally just fuzz and put that on its own track. So then if I need bass fuzz, I just pull up that fader and there's the grind and it sounds better than any pedal or anything like that. thing that I've noticed about your mixes is that for heavy mixes, the bass is way more prominent than you normally hear. Like, you know, typically in metal, even if you can hear the bass, it's kind of just like adding teeth to the guitar in a way, mm -hmm. adding teeth and rounding it out. But in your mixes, it does that too, but it's also its own instrument. Like you can hear everything the bass player is doing. But what's unique about it to me is that Usually when you can hear everything the bass player is doing, it's because it's a shitty mix and the person didn't know how to get things to blend together. Like it, it sounds 
awkward, if you know what I mean. Like, it doesn't marry the guitar to the kick drum the way it should. Right. There's something about your mixes where the bass stands out, yet it totally fulfills its role. Well, I am a bass player, so maybe oh, that's that makes sense. part of it. And a lot of producers are bass players. Funny, a lot of Canadian produ producers are bass players, too. But I think that people underestimate how important bass is in the mix, especially in music that isn't metal. The bass is as important as the guitar, especially when it's a bass player that's moving or adding melody like John Paul Jones or the bass player from Stone Temple Pilots is unbelievable the way he mimics vocal melodies on his bass. And he's also writing the song, so maybe that's part of it. But for me, a lot of the bottom end in the mix comes from the bass. A lot of guys like to pump up all that sub on the kick drum and everything and to me especially when it gets into double bass that just turns into mud so i prefer to get my bottom end from the bass guitar usually and i don't add any it's just turning it up louder in the mix perceives more bottom end do you think that because you're a bass player also especially when producing bass players you just have a more of an understanding of how to get what's needed out of them. Yeah, it can be frustrating sometimes when you're working with a bass player who doesn't know how to mute his strings or, you know, just isn't playing something the way I would have played it. And, you know, I'm an average bass player now, but when I was younger, I was good. I practiced all the time. And, you know, like any good Canadian was obsessed with Rush. And, <laughs> you know, it's just... Yeah, it's that definitely has a huge part of it is getting a great bass tone when producing a bass player and coaching them on how to play bass at least in my opinion, correctly or better. And honestly, most of the guys that I've been lucky to work with in the last few years are, are all great and have great technique, but everybody does things a little differently. And some people bend strings too much or they don't know how to mute the strings they're not playing. And that can be subtle stuff that live doesn't matter. But when you get in the studio under the microscope, it's like, oh, I've been doing that wrong for my entire career. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah, I, absolutely, man. I, I really do think that bass is like the uh, the secret weapon in heavy records. Like a great bass tone makes all the difference in the world. Well, certainly with a band like Amonomarth, the bass player was pretty used to just having this low, rumbly, non-existent, defined tone in the background underneath the guitars, and he was mm -hmm. just okay with that. Well, I mean, that's so standard in metal. Yeah, but I put a Spectre in his hands, an 85 Spectre that just had that, you know, Rex, Jason Newstead grind, and he was like, oh, that's a bass sound. Wow, you know? And it, yeah, I mean, we went for that kind of you know, Garage Days, chunky Spectre bass sound, and he loved it, and it, you can hear it on the record. I tried to make it fairly audible, which, you know, just probably was something else they weren't really used to. And yeah, he was quite quite happy with it. Yeah, I don't think that most metal bands are used to that, but it's not because it can't be done well. Like, like I said, I think your mixes are perfect example of it being done well, but it's just typically not done well. So it's not easy. You know, That's I, I the think, problem. No, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always play nice. You've mentioned in uh, other interviews that you had to kind of make the discovery that less is more and uh, emphasize the need to nail tracking at the source as opposed to leaning on lots of edits. Was that something that uh, was kind of a product of the time period that you came up in or something deeper as in? It's just always going to sound better if it's done better at the source. Yeah, I mean, I, that definitely comes from age and just working on tape. And 
I worked with this producer, Nick Blagona, quite a bit. He did a couple Deep Purple records, and I think he did the Bee Gees, like Saturday Night Fever, which was passed around between multiple engineers. And his thing was always like, this tape is going to fly around the world, and lots of engineers are going to pull it up. And if my tones aren't gold, I don't want to be that guy like that they're bitching about. And, you know, that was a concern back then, because a lot of times, you know, you started with the tapes, and the tapes went to somebody else to finish or add stuff. And, you know, you wanted people to pull your tracks up and be like, okay, this is great. You know, I don't need to fix much. And so it was ingrained in me pretty early on to get killer tones to tape, make decisions, and not leave too many questions later. Like when I get multi tracks now, I get one guitar track can be six tracks. It'd be like a DI and three cabinets with three mics, or, you know, sometimes, you know, so a song will have 140 guitar tracks and it's only three or four parts. And I don't, I just don't do that. Like I'll have, I might have two or three amps and two or three cabinets with two or three mics, but all that gets bust to one track. And I might keep a DI depending on who it is and how confident I am in the tone. But so then maybe the guitar, each guitar part is at most two tracks. So you commit all the time. I get the phase perfect and. You know, I'll have all the amps going sometimes, or in certain songs I'll mute one of the amps, or I'll pull out some of the mics. I'll have like eight or ten mics up on the console, and I'll literally just move those faders around till me and the guitar player like that blend, and then we commit that to a track, and then take the DI just as a precaution, you know, in case there's something weird later. And then, yeah, that's basically it. So same with really everything. I don't do anything too risky with drums. You know, I always split the top and bottom snare mics onto different tracks because I've had nightmare scenarios where uh, the engineer has combined the top and bottom to a track, which is fine. It's no, There's no law against that, but if you don't get them in phase, that's really bad. There is a law against that. Yeah, exactly. So, And, you know, I used to bus all the toms to two tracks, especially on if I, in the early days, doing metal you know i didn't have i only had 24 tracks and maybe we had an extra eight or 16 synced up still you know you want you didn't want to use six or seven tracks for toms if the guy had a shitload of toms so it was uh just something we did you know and so you make sure you get great tom sounds and not too much cymbal leakage and you rode the crap out of those faders during the mix when you get tracks from another producer and it is like eight tracks for one guitar, that sort of thing. Does it make it harder to approach because they're kind of not giving you any real vision? It's kind of like, here's just basically a diarrhea of tones. Do your thing. It's not that it makes it harder. I guess it just makes it take 10 times as long. And probably my hardest thing and why it wouldn't work out with certain bands like, say, kill switch or anybody like that is they would send a lot of tones and basically leave it up to the producer well i would trust andy sneepsier on that from day one he just knows that's his thing so which is probably why they work with him so much and but for me it was like six six amps they all sound great you know like it's (laughs) you know which which one to pick i mean that's really objective so yeah i'd much prefer somebody just commit and send me something they love and a lot of times it's because the band has recorded the record themselves or with an engineer who they're not fully confident in so they're sending it to me going look we did this just in case that's fine it's you know it's not like i get annoyed or anything it's just it's more work but 
you know, usually what I'll do is I'll pick the best sounding pair and go with that. And if during the mix, if I feel like, oh, the chorus needs a little more, maybe I'll slide in one of the other amps or something. But rarely will I spend the time like rebalancing all their amps and bouncing that to one track or whatever. I'll usually just create a blend and and go with it. Okay, so typically they're doing that to give you options because they're not necessarily confident in what happened. It's not necessarily just a sprawl of tones because they're disorganized or something. Correct. Like, it depends. It all comes down to who it is. Like, right now I'm mixing the new Mr. Bungle record. Wow, that's awesome. And both guitars are one track each. And that's it. They did supply a DI, but I, of course, do not need it because Trey and Scott have killer tones. And the bass is one bass amp, one DI. And then Lombardo, of course, you know, it just... It's great. And they went for a very specific sound, and that's what I'm capturing. It's live as fuck. It sounds like a punk band in a garage, which is exactly what it should sound like. So, you know, there's nothing fancy going on. They just knew exactly what they wanted, so it's glorious. It makes my job very easy. I think that band's glorious. Yeah, and the live shows that they did a few months ago were fantastic, and this basically sounds exactly like that. Did you uh, ever see them back in the day, by any chance? I did, actually, because this record's like a thrash metal thing, basically. It's like redoing... They always do something different. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I saw them, I think it was on the second album. I don't even remember the year, but it was, yeah, a long time ago. And I'm a big Mike Patton fan. I saw Faith No More on the Angel Dust tour in Detroit in, like, 92, so I'm a fan. Yeah, I think that they're... It's weird to say underrated because people who know them, like, realize how great they are. But I think they're one of the most underrated bands ever. They're so fucking good. There's some musicianship happening and killer lyrics and just, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're great. I just got excited that you're doing that. I had heard that they were making a record and then COVID happened and I didn't hear more about it. Yeah, they vaguely posted about it on uh, social media a little bit, some photos and whatnot from the studio. And I think they recorded at Dave Grohl's spot, 606, which is actually a really great studio. I've recorded in there as well. Really nice drum room. And of course, the Sound City Neve. So yeah, it's hard to go wrong in there. How often does that happen, though, where a band comes in with just like that kind of vision that's that defined? It depends on the band. You know, a lot of the stuff that's The veteran bands, older bands that come to me for just mixing have pretty much know what they want. Of course, some of the younger bands do too. So it's really, it's, I can't really define it by a generational thing. I think it just depends on who the band is and how confident they are where they are in their career and their sound. And, you know, I'm not going to mess with Anthrax too much, although I'm producing that as well when I'm with them. They just have a sound. You know, it's not like something that needs to be fucked with. So, It's more about just best songs, best performances, all that kind of thing. But, you know, I think a lot of stuff that comes to me, at least on that level, has been pretty well figured out. Do you prefer that as opposed to, like, say, when you get something and you kind of have to invent the direction? Inventing direction is fun if the artist is open to that. And I've had those scenarios where they're like, do whatever the hell you want. We really don't know what this is. We just like our songs. Here's a bunch of tones. Just make it cool. Yeah, and that that usually works well because then I can get creative and not worry about people freaking out if something's not exactly the way the demo is because the other way around can be worse when it's hardcore, like has to be just like the demo. And 
that is impossible to deal with almost. And I've had that a lot too, where it's like, this is just like, this has to be, this veered from the demo. Like, why are we doing that? Well, then why are we making this record? Like, just release your demo, you know? How could you make it sound like the demo? It's like... It's impossible. It's impossible. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. The beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. One thing that I've heard, I forget who said it, but I really agree, is that you know the mark of a really great producer or mixer is, isn't just being able to make things sound great, but it's also knowing when to get the fuck out of the way. Yeah, that's uh, something that took a long time to learn and that whole less is more approach. When I'm producing a record, it's very rare that I have to get super involved. I'm not that guy that's rewriting the songs and writing everybody's parts and picking up the guitar and playing things. That's just not what I do. So I tend not to work with bands that need that. And there's producers out there that do that and do it great. And you know that's why they exist. So bands, I tend to gravitate towards bands that don't need that kind of intricate help they just need a tour guides more or less like trusting the process making the record getting great performances helping them pick songs fixing arrangements adding interesting ideas you know that kind of which is definitely a very old school approach but that's just what i grew up doing so um and it's the same with mixing you know i used to eq the crap out of everything soloing each instrument and now i don't don't even touch an EQ or a compressor. I literally just push up all the faders, balance the whole mix as best I can, then start EQing stuff while listening to everything. How do you figure out in advance if the band is going to need that kind of hand-holding? Like, what's the process like for you to determine, this band's not suited for what I do? Like, do they come to you and say, we want help writing the songs? Or is it something you kind of got to deduce 
Yeah, it's figured out pretty early on. Like, if they come to me and they also want co-writing, which isn't what I do, I usually suggest that they either work with a writer I'll suggest or a producer that writes. And if they're like, well, we want you to, we really want you to produce. Okay, fine, then here's the writers I would suggest or here are writers I don't necessarily know, but maybe you could reach out to. And, you know, it's that's I don't do that as much because certainly in rock and metal, there isn't a ton of co-writing across whole records, like in pop, where there's a different person on every song. And those records tend to be more complicated. And some of the more alternative pop rock records I've done, there's definitely been multiple writers and producers. And then I'm kind of just overseeing the whole thing and trying to tie it all together. and uh, Or if I'm just mixing it, it's like collecting tracks from three or four different producers, and you know, which is always a challenge, but can be done. So kind of something I'm really getting from you is that you're very, very clear what it is that you bring to the table. It seems like you expect everyone you're working with to be on that same page, that if they're looking for stuff that's not what you bring to the table, then... No problem, but uh, figure that out in advance and let's not get any false hopes going or false expectations. Well, exactly. Because if you don't figure it out at the beginning, it's going to cause nothing but trouble later. And you don't want bad blood or people unhappy. And the best way to avoid that is to figure it all out from the start and not move forward if you if anybody feels like there's going to be an issue. Do you just handle it through conversation or is it sometimes you got to get started? Yeah, yeah, you, not usually get started, but usually it's like a band will reach out either directly to me or through an A&R person I know or my manager or whatever and they'll start sending demos. And if I click with the demos and think I hear something, then I'll respond and say, yeah, there's something here. We should we should talk. Then it's a phone conversation. Then it's, can I actually add anything to what you're doing? And sometimes the answer is no. You know, I've told bands, like, I don't actually think I can do much more for you than you're already doing yourself. You know, you just needed somebody to get a great recording. If you want me to mix it, sure. But as for production, I think you're there. Or maybe you need to work with this person. You know, I'm pretty honest about whether I think I'm the right person for the job or not. And it's took a long time to figure out, but it's like, you just, I don't like to be in that situation where I feel like I'm not the right person. Because, you know, I wouldn't call Daniel Lanois to make a Death Row metal record. You know, I would call him to make a U2 record. But that's because that's what he's amazing at. And some producers, like the Rick Rubens and whatnot, they can do multiple genres, but they're also very hands-off. They're not technical. So I think if you're an engineer and a producer, it's a little different. You said you like to do one song at a time. You know how one of the complaints about modern heavy music is that it all sounds very homogenous basically like mm -hmm. I don't think it all sounds the same but I, I get where people are coming from in that you get records where you could take one riff from one song and paste it into another song and you wouldn't even know the difference or take a section from one record and put it on another band's record and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference like that does happen certainly a lot more than it used to do you think that that's one of the byproducts of that style of recording where you do all the drums and all the guitars. Certainly, because what happens when you go one song at a time is you can just start changing everything. Like, let's use different toms. Let's change out the snare. That kick drum's weird. We should have a fluffier kick drum. Or I'll totally rebalance all the mics on the guitars. Like with a monomarth, every song 
I would change the microphone balance so that every song had a different sounding speaker or a different sounding microphone. One might have been 257s, another song might have been a 421 and a M149, you know, just make each. And in the end, do they all sound different? Not really. They sound pretty similar, but it's different enough that the texture of the record at least has somewhat of a different feel. Because if you just do all the guitars for a week straight, you're pretty much going to get a tone and you're going to stick with it. And you're not going to mess with it too much, most likely. I think most people take that safe route. Yeah, I think so. Whereas I'm like, let's mess with it. You know, let's, especially if you're doubling and you know, you get the main track. Usually what I'll do is if I have three microphones and they're balanced, you know, a specific way, I'll swap the balance for the double and just see if it, how that sounds, you know. I don't know. I just mark everything on the console with a grease pencil. And if we have to go back and fix the other track, I just put all the faders back. Okay, that was, that was my next question was how do you keep consistency if, first of all, if you don't like where you went and also just overall, where does the cohesion come from? Well, I don't take much notes because usually there's an assistant there. I just have them take photos of the amp settings, take photos of the fader settings, mark the amp settings, mark the microphone placement, mark the console. So we can generally get back to where we were if we come back the next day and decide, oh, that was a mistake. And usually the guitar player is happy to replay it anyway. Or sometimes I've had moments where, well, we have the DI. Let's just rebalance the mics and just send the DI back out off off Pro Tools or off tape, back through the rig and just reprint it with a better mic balance. And that happens once in a while, but pretty rarely. I kind of wish that more modern producers took that approach of trying to make every song have its own identity. I think there's been problems in the music industry due to technology, and I actually think it's on an upswing now, but I think that part of what happened isn't just that the technology killed the sales. I also think that the monotony killed the sales, the monotony of the sounds. Oh, for sure. You can't just blame it on huge corporations. It's also the musicians and producers started making stuff that just wasn't as interesting to the public. I agree 100%. And, you know, I found a lot of the bands that were getting signed or promoted just weren't making music that was maybe more the cool factor than the actual just great songs. And, you know, that's a pretty massive discussion about the entire music industry's direction in the early 2000s but yeah it was downloading was only a part of that problem yeah another thing was too many bands were getting signed like bands that just did not deserve to get signed like basically glorified local bands it was just like there was a wave of bands that should not have had budgets should not have had tour support just shouldn't have been signed yeah, they had one song usually, and it was the label managed to make that song a huge hit, and then they're gone forever. And, you know, it's just a different time when I was younger. The bands that were getting signed had everything great performance skills, musicianship, songs, live show. It just, they had to have all those things to be worthy of all that money being poured into them. So, speaking of old days versus new days, something that I've noticed is there's like a divide between people who came up through the old studio system is uh, a lot of people didn't adapt. And I feel like those are the dudes who may have had a lot of work back in the day, but kind of don't anymore. And then there's a school of people who have all the old skills, but adapted with the times. And so they combine all those old school sensibilities with the modern technology and 
modern efficiency. I, I think that that's the ideal, really. But how did you take to the transformation? Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, you have guys like Joe Barisi who are obviously started off in tape and old studios. And, you know, he's one of the most successful guys on the planet right now and in the modern world. It's just... He's killing it. Yeah, so you have to be able to make that transition. And you're right, some people weren't able to do that or at least adapt to it. And I, when I left Canada and was flying to Los Angeles, I was reading the Pro Tools manual because I'd never used it. And this was in like 2002. And a lot of guys had started using Pro Tools in the late 90s and probably even earlier, to be honest. I had used Logic Audio, which was it was called Logic Audio in the 90s, and I used that for MIDI and Digital Performer I was using. And I remember that one. Yeah, just for that was just for MIDI, basically. And then I did use Nuendo a little bit in like 2000, 2001, but the studio I was at had it, but I just used the tape all the time. It was just easier for me. And so yeah, I read the Pro Tools manual on the plane, and I got to the studio in LA and opened a session and started learning how to mix and use Pro Tools on the spot. So it was literally, I had no choice. <laughs> Just figure out how to use it and make records on Sink it. Sink or and swim. Yeah, so, and that was great. I'm glad I did. And certainly, I do, I've done everything much later than everybody else. You know, I didn't, I was in my, I was 30, I think, when I came to L.A., and I was never used Pro Tools. It just wasn't what I was doing, so I figured it out as quick as I could. What was it in you that made you do that? Like, why do you think that you uh, kind of saw the light as opposed to resisting it? You mean learning Pro Tools? Yeah, yeah. Learning Pro Tools, going digital, like all that stuff. I think it just, they. it was appealing to be able to do more to things because to edit drums on tape or punch in and make stuff as tight as possible it was hard it's it recording was very difficult on tape and it was stressful and cutting tape was a nightmare i would have like dozens of drum fills like taped up on the wall and like which one was good and okay and you'd have to like splice them in to see if they worked and you know to edit to edit one good drum take could take all day you know, now you can do it in 20 minutes. And so I think that part of it appealed to me. But at the same time, it also makes people work way slower because they tinker for hours and hours and hours on shit that doesn't need to be messed with. And that's so in some aspects, I do less because it's like, oh, you don't need to tinker with that. You know, you just just get it right and, and move on. But certainly with editing and making things better and tighter is just obviously so much easier to do. So I embraced that side of it fairly quickly. It just took a while for me to get used to the sound because I was so used to recording something and hearing it on playback always sounded different. Tape changes it. Changes the bottom end, changes the top end, changes the mid-range, mostly in a pleasing way. Or sometimes not pleasing if you hit it too hard and it distorts or whatever. So it took some getting used to the sound. And this was back when we had those 888s, I think they were called, those black Digidesign converters. And, yeah. and then we had the Apogee purple ones. Those actually sounded really good. So... Things started to improve, and I got used to the way it sounded. And then, of course, things got crazy loud and mastering, and that just you know was a whole other conversation. <laughs> Did you see it as kind of a necessity? Yeah, because especially in LA, everybody was using it. Uh, obviously, people were still making records on tape. People still do, but 
everything I was starting to do, and most of my first five or six years in LA was mostly pop music. Like I was working with Desmond Child, and I was working with these Swedish guys, Andreas Carlson, and you know we did some Katy Perry stuff, and Leanne Rhymes, and American Idol, and all that pop stuff. It was 100% Pro Tools, hundreds of tracks, gazillions of background vocals, like programming coming in from all over the world, and MIDI sync issues, and this guy's using Logic, this guy's using Performer, you know, it's just, you just had to know all of that stuff, which, you know, I had to learn pretty quickly. Can we talk about uh, your drum sounds a little bit? Sure. I remember you told me something like seven years ago or something. It was a long time ago. We were talking, I think we were talking about the Hail the Apocalypse or something, and you mentioned that your goal is that if you do have to use a sample, you don't want anyone to know that it's in there. Does that sound like something you said? I feel like you said that to me. Yeah, I mean, I still have that attitude now, and I think that that works for me, it doesn't work for all the bands sometimes. You know, I've had drummers, especially, who are used to having their records have a lot of samples, hear it back and go, yeah, maybe that needs more sample. And, you know, I'm happy to oblige if they ask for that, you know. But I think you have to have a drummer that is into not having a ton of sample. Or if it is there, it's there for support and or ambience. I use a lot of ambient samples, especially kick and snare. I don't use tom samples generally unless the recording is bad or they just, you know, sometimes in the mix it just if you need more power, sometimes tom samples are helpful. I just I don't use them that much. I like to add a snare sample that's literally just a ring. There's no attack to it. It's just a big obnoxious ring that most people would try and get rid of but i like to have my drums wide open no tape no moon gels usually when i'm tracking just as ringy as possible because once you pile a bunch of guitars on top of it and vocals unless the drummer's playing by himself in a section of the song most people are never even going to hear that but it gives the snare a lot of body and depth and I think a band like Rammstein is a perfect example because the drummer's snare is pretty ringy, but it's also tuned pretty high, but it still sounds powerful. Why is that? Because he's hitting it correctly, it's got a nice ring to it, but you have these absolutely monstrous guitar sounds that are just unbelievable, but the drums still sound pretty good. So the drums aren't the focus in that band, the guitars certainly are, but it still works. And when you go see them live, same thing. He hits that snare in that stadium and it's like ping for like three seconds, it feels yep. like. <laughs> but it works, you know, it just for them that works. So but I've always liked a big open sounding drum kit and I love big drum rooms and the samples are absolutely necessary and have their place, and I think some people rely on them probably 75 or 80% of their drum sound, and I'm more the other way around. I like the, the live kit to be you know, 85 or 90%. The samples are just there to, as you said, I said, <laughs> it's there, but I don't want you to know it's there. I'm positive you said it. Yeah, and I, it means a lot of automation, too. Every snare fill, I go in and intricately design this the automation on the samp the snare sample so that especially on press rolls if he's starting soft and getting loud you know the sample's never gonna I mean, even with the best velocity and the best you know design sample it's never going to sound correct to me at least anyway and so getting that that right is important so what do you do when you're given something to mix and 
the drums just, you know, they're done in a small room, shitty mics, bad tuning, like, you know, that scenario that happens. Happens a lot. And it happens in great studios with great drummers and bad engineering, more than you would know. That makes it really tough. I usually spend a good amount of time making those drums sound the best I can possibly make them with, you know, parallel compression, EQ, notching, you know, making obviously spend a long time on phase, just making sure that the live kit sounds as best as possible. Then once I then I'll usually bring in the other instruments and see how much better or louder do I need to make these drums. So I will then start bringing in the samples very slowly, very quietly to see how how little I can use before it gets to where it needs to be. And sometimes it ends up being more than I thought I would, and it surprises me even if I just sold the kit. But as long as it doesn't sound like that when all the instruments are in. So you're still kind of approaching it with the same aesthetic goal, even if it's a shitty recording. Absolutely, because I just don't like hearing it sound like all fake drums. But I've had situations where I've just had no choice. The drummer has even said to me, I couldn't get a good drum sound. We didn't have the budget. Just use a bunch of samples. Okay, fine. We we know that going in. So that's fine. And, you know, there was a record I mixed uh, about eight years ago that was like that. The drums were recorded in the guy's basement. He did his best. But the guitar sounds were great. The singing was great. The bass tone was great. So I just used more samples than I normally would use, and it turned out fine. So speaking of great vocals, when it comes to approaching vocals, whether you're producing or mixing, do you kind of have like a tried and true approach or does it change drastically between projects? Is it kind of like like with the guitar thing where you're dialing a different tone per song or is it kind of like this is just the way we do vocals? Generally for a record, I'll get a pretty consistent vocal sound unless we have a specific idea. The good thing about Pro Tools is you can manipulate vocals later which is incredibly easy. So I would tend not to mess with it going in. I love U67s. I love distressors. Not too picky about mic pre's on vocals. I'll use whatever's in front of me. I'm not too picky about gear in general, to be honest. I'll walk in a studio. I don't know model numbers. I don't care. Whatever's there, I'll use. And you know, people are like very specific about which That's Neve, cool. which Neve they love, and oh, the Sound City Neve, nothing sounds like it. I recorded on the Sound City Neve a few times. Does it sound fantastic? Yes. Does it sound way better than any other Neve? Probably not. But a lot of hit records were made on it. That makes it cool. But you know, lots of Neves sound amazing. So yeah, I just use whatever's in front of me, and if there's a 1073 or a 1081. Sure, I'll use that. But if there's an API, I'll use that too. I also love Tridents. I have a Trident console sitting next to me. So it's just whatever's in front of me. But microphone-wise, I do have specific vocal mics I like. I really like U67s. I really like Elam 251s. Now, those are both incredibly expensive microphones, and not everybody has those. Most big, good studios have at least one or two of those. But I'll use TLM 103s, U87s. I have cheaper mics, too. The Aston Spirit is great. I have, I think I have five or six of the Studio Project C1s, which are basically U87 copies. All the warm audio mics are great, so I'll use the warm audio 87 sometimes. U47 can be great on vocals. But again, I'm not 
too picky about it if I walk in and the options just aren't there. You'll make it work no matter what. I never, ever, ever will use an SM7. Everybody uses them. I get records with them all the time, and I instantly know when the vocal's been recorded with an SM7, <laughs> and I just put my head in my hands. and That's the line you will not cross. <laughs> never. I never understand why people use I understand why screamers use it, because they can hold it, and it sounds fine for like death vocals and screaming. It's totally fine. But for singing... It like hides the shitty part of a screamer's voice in a weird way. Probably, yeah. It's got a weird scoop in the mids and it's got a nice bump at, well, a nice bump, I say, at 3K, which is nice for their voice. But for singing, it's absolutely atrocious. Probably the worst sounding vocal mic I've ever heard. And it just bums me out so bad when I get a multi-track and I can tell all the vocals were done with it because I know I'm going to have to wrestle with it. Where if it's any other mic on the planet, I can pretty much deal with it fairly quickly. You know, it's interesting that you said what you've been saying about gear that besides SM7s, that you're cool with what's there. And I feel like the gear thing... There's a lot of hype behind it, especially online. And I think a lot of the gear myths about it making this massive, massive, massive difference, a lot of it is perpetuated by people who have never tried the gear and have just read what other people have said. And uh, and there are certain things like, you know, the cool harmonics that an API gives, they're cool and all. It's super subtle, but when you hear people talking about it online or in interviews, they make it sound like it's this like game-changing thing where in reality, it's like 2% difference. Oh, yeah. A lot of that stuff is total voodoo and I've never fallen for it, especially plugins too. Like I've never spent any of the money on like the universal audio or any of that because I've tried it and it sounds good, but it doesn't sound any better to me at least than a lot of the other stuff that's out there. Some of their effects plugins are really cool, like the Roland uh, chorus and things like that. But compression and EQ, a plugin's a plugin. And, you know, if you can hear the difference between the Waves SSL and the UA SSL, then good for you. But it's all about twisting the knobs and making it sound the way you want to sound. And same goes for outboard gear. You know, I blind tested about seven converters because I, you know, I've been using the old 192 forever. And I did a blind test, bounced a mix through seven converters and sent it to five or six engineers. And I would say four of the six picked the 192. So I'm like, <laughs> if these golden ear dudes can't hear the difference, what am I worried about? I did end up buying a Burl bomber because I could actually hear the difference. I liked the way it sounded. I do like that the 192 has a soft clip and you can hammer it pretty hard, and the Burl does not. So my mixes are quieter, probably by 2 dB, but who cares? You know, I'm not into loud. You know, my records are quiet. So that is the one piece of outboard gear that I have purchased in the last few years, but. I don't buy much gear or, you know, get too crazy about plugins because I just, I think a lot of it just is a waste of money and doesn't really sound any better. I know you love the Bomb Factory 1176. Still use it every day on lead vocals. That's a great plugin. How old is that? It's like a 20 year old plugin, right? At least, I mean, whenever Pro Tools started, I guess. I don't even know. I, I've been using it since 2002. And. Have I tried all the other ones? Yeah, absolutely. I have the CLA one from Waves. I've got 
the purple audio one, which actually does sound really cool, but it just sounds different. And it's really what you want. I find the UA ones, they're slow. They, I don't know, they just, they don't feel good to me. And I don't know what it is with the 1176 in particular, but I don't know. It's just the Bomb Factory one can do what I need it to do. And that's what matters. Yeah. And I've used other compressor compressors as well. I'll route the vocal out of my Pro Tools into a, a live distressor sometimes if, I, if I'm really not getting what I need. And I'll compress the vocals in the mix with outboard gear, but not too often these days. Since I wasn't doing this in the 90s or 80s, like I don't know if it was this way. Maybe you can tell me. But I feel like one of the problems nowadays is people get too obsessed yeah with plugins or gear like they worry more about getting that piece than about what their actual vision is for what they're working on and uh it just seems like their priorities are wrong was it like that in the 90s too with gear where there was it like oh this piece of gear is going to make all the difference in the world my mixes are suddenly going to be really good if i just get this compressor or something I think probably to an extent, but everything was a lot more expensive back then, and most people didn't have their own studios. Very few had quality home studios. It was usually very demo-type home studios. So you walked into a big studio, you hoped that whoever put that studio together had enough sense to have the usual suspects. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you walked in and there was some nice TL audio, TLA audio, like, tube compressors or an SSL bus compressor or a GMA EQ, maybe some drummer gates, you know, the old days of having to use stuff like that, then sure, you know, you you felt pretty good. And a lot of it you did on the console anyway, you know, EQing and whatnot. So I think it was less of the case. It was when people started putting together pretty good home studios that a lot of that gear obsession at least with engineers, started to happen. And a lot of the old school engineers have tons of their own gear. They'd come across something they found interesting, like Joe Barisi probably has more gear than anybody on the planet. Does he use it all? Probably not anymore, but you know, I'm sure he did at one time. And I think it just depends on, people tend to find something that works for them and they stick with it. And that's what I've done for a long time. And if I find something new that truly improves my workflow, then it's worth the purchase. And but that doesn't happen that often. I do find cool plugins once in a while, and that's cool. But you know, what's a cool one you've discovered recently? Recently, um, more on the on the amplifier plugin side. Like I like what the Neural DSP guys are doing. I've you know for yeah, they're for, good for reamping. I found some stuff. I love all the plugin alliance and Brainworks stuff. Their console emulations are really nice. I use the SSL uh, four thousand on my subgroups that go out to my Trident. So even though I'm hitting a real console with my subgroups, I still emulate the SSL also, which is fun and gives a whole another texture. But it sounds like it's nothing crazy, though. No, and I, I mean, I've there's been some distortions and things, and. I mean, I'm not a super new user to Decapitator. I've been using it for a while, but I was definitely a late discoverer of stuff like that because I would just use other things to distort. But I really, I use that a lot for distortion and I love the micro shift for vocals and for guitar solos and things like that because the micro shift was something that we used in the H3000. So, you know, that was a staple for guitar solo tones and for lead vocal spread. So the fact that they turned it into a plugin was pretty cool. Was there a time period where you were more obsessed with gear and then you learned it didn't matter as much as you thought? Or have you always kind of been like this? 
No, when I was younger, I definitely thought gear was way more important <laughs> because I didn't realize that playing and performance and great songs was the most important thing. That's the one thing coming out of engineering school is I think I thought gear was way more important than it was. And it's not that gear isn't important. Obviously, it is. But I realized that so many other things are just as important. The reason I bring it up is just because I just want to help people prioritize better. Right. Focus more on the things that make the biggest difference. Like you were saying with samples versus live tones, there's a ratio there. And I think that there's a ratio of, you know, in terms of the quality you're going to get of how much the gear is going to impart versus what the music itself and the performances are going to impart. I think if you do a bad job engineering and the band sucks and you put it through a $2 million rig, it's just going to sound like a $2 million piece of shit, basically. 100%. And I think that's the part that gets past a lot of people. And I did a record with a, sort of a super group called The Damn Things. And we piecemealed that record together just when we all had time. Some of it was done in Joe uh, Troman, the guitar player, in his basement studio. Some of it was done in my garage, in my little vocal booth. Some of it, the drums were all done in a nice studio. But the difference is, is they were all great players, great songs, great musicians, good enough gear, and it turned out amazing. I, I love the way that record sounds. So I just work with what's in front of me, to be honest, and I don't get too crazy. I don't travel with any gear. When I go to studios, I rarely bring anything unless it's specialty. But, you know, I just kind of work with what's in the room. And if I'm going to a studio I've never been to before, I'll look at their gear list and make sure at least that they have the basics. And if I feel like something's missing, I'll make a request maybe to rent something. But generally, it's I'll walk in and use what they have. Makes sense. So I don't want to take up your whole day, but we do have a few questions from our audience for you. Sure. And one's from our friend Josh Newell. Huh. Two are from Josh, actually. He's saying... One of the things I love about Jay's mixes is the low end. The kicks, bass, and guitars all sound big without stepping on each other or losing clarity. What is your approach to keeping the low end thick but clear? While I could see how this might be easier to achieve with a Steel Panther mix like 17 Girls in a Row, how do you make it work for busier songs like Anthrax's Fight Em Till You Can't? Well, I sort of take the same approach that I do with every style of music, even pop music that has like crazy... 808s and stuff. For really good bottom end, I go really deep. I'll do like a 40 or 30 hertz shelf and down. And I'll EQ maybe in the analog domain sometimes and in the digital domain on the stems that go out to the console. I'll add maybe 3 to 5 dB boost at like 30 hertz and down. Just so you get this rumble, but it doesn't... Because once you start getting up around 90, 100, 120, that's mud city. 200 hertz, that's just like, you know, in your car, that'll just sound like there's a tissue bag over the, over the speakers. So bottom end is so hard. I either have not enough or too much. It's like the constant struggle. Mid-range, top end, I can usually get that pretty quickly. But usually what I'll do is I'll mix the whole song and balance everything really well and get it happening and then realize there's no bottom end. So then I'll be like spending two, three hours re-sculpting the EQ. Or I do a lot of overall EQ these days and much less individual EQ. You can go through my mix sessions and see some of the instruments don't even have a single plug-in on them. It's just... If the tone is there, I don't mess with it. I just do an overall EQ. 
on the stereo mix and on the subgroups. And it saves time and it just, a lot of the same EQ approach can work on the same instrument if the record was recorded all by the same person with the same mindset and the same studio and the same gear. Like if it's all recorded in the same studio using a lot of the same mics, it's usually going to have the same problems. A hump at 200 hertz or a dip at, you know, 1K or something weird like that. It's funny how that works. People don't realize how much the room can affect everything. So, oh God, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with bass guitar, sometimes I'll use the subharmonic generator just to get real deep subs. But I don't really add bottom end anywhere where you would think like 60 to 150. I don't touch that, just the instrument itself. I just let it do it. And if I want more bottom end or more bass, I usually just turn the bass guitar louder in the mix rather than EQ it. Same with drums, you know, like kick drum. I don't like the sub kick mic. It never sounds good to me. Uh, so I don't use that very often. I usually stick a U47 outside the drum and something inside like an Audix or a, even a 57 has killer attack inside a kick drum. Garth Richardson used to use a 57 and a 421. I think that's what he used on the Rage record. Again, it's more just overall EQ, I suppose. I don't really... I don't know what I do necessarily other than it's just constant fiddling <laughs> like where EQ, where the EQ point is. And sometimes I'll add a little 90 hertz and down, maybe a dB or two to the whole mix if I feel like it's missing a bit of thud. But usually it's low, 50, 30, 40 and down, you know, mm -hmm. kind of area. And just obviously every situation is a little different. Sure. And writing, a lot of automation, you know, that anytime there's double bass, you know, either either EQ automation or uh, fader or level automation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, actually, Josh's second question we already talked about, so I'll skip it. Bass Peters says, hey, Jay, love your work. I was wondering what the guitar chain was like on High Crimes by The Damn Things, if you can still remember. I love how modern the record sounds while the guitars still have that vintage rock sound. Thanks. I can tell you exactly what it was. Joe Troman recorded most of those guitars himself for his parts, I should say. I recorded Scott Ian's parts. Scott's was just his 5150. Uh, mic'd up with a pair of 57s, one straight on the cone, one at a 45-degree angle, and I think on the rhythm channel. And then uh, he's pretty much straight up the middle in the mix, and then Joe's doubled because he plays harmonized to himself a lot. And he played... He had some weird guitar. Not a Manson or Mace, those metal guitar... I forget what they're called. I think the guy from Muse has one. I know he had one of those, and then he had an old Les Paul Jr. maybe, but he played through a Friedman. And we mic'd it with a Tull, T-U-L. I don't know if you're familiar with these mics, but... I have never heard of a Tull. Tull mics are incredible. They used to make a snare mic, which was basically two 57s, one direct and one at a 45 degree, and the same thing for the guitar mic. So it's basically two 57s in one mic, and it sounds absolutely fantastic. I don't know if they still make the snare mic. Somebody told me maybe they didn't, but Francesco over at Sphere has one of the snare mics, and it just sounds amazing. With especially when you pair it with another with an actual fifty-seven. But the tall guitar mic, you literally just point it directly at the center of the cone for the best results, and it's got one little switch on it for dark or bright, and it just sounds amazing. And that's all that guitar sound is: is just that one mic on that one speaker on that one amp. And he basically played it twice, 
one with some harmonies on the on the right side or the left and that was it and those when i was working on the drums and the bass and getting all the vocals with keith and everything and then joe would send over his guitar tracks i'd be just like wow these guitars sound amazing like he did a great job and then scott's always easy to record because his tone just always crushes isn't it amazing how simple it is when you're working with people who just have their shit together yes as musicians <laughs> Absolutely. And when they come in, like the first Steel Panther record, the guitar player walked in. He didn't even own an amp. He literally had his guitar in his hand, not even in a case. And that guy's one of the greatest <laughs> musicians on the planet. God, he's incredible. He is ridiculous. And he can play anything, funk, blues, I mean, you name it. And, you know, most people just see that band and think he's just a shredder, but he's so beyond that. And he just assumed that the studio would have a good amp. And so we ended up calling uh, Jeff from Armored Saint and getting his vintage JCM 800 from like the late seventies or something. And that's how we got the guitar sound on the first Steel Panther record was I think a pair of JCM 800s and maybe a PB 5150, I think. But you know, it just didn't matter what he plugged into. It was going to sound amazing. That's the thing about great players that they're going to sound great no matter what they're plugged into, and they're going to sound like themselves. It's crazy. Yep. All right, let's see here. Lindsay McDonald is wondering, are there any tips you can give to musicians to help them work better with producers during a recording session? I guess tips for people going into the studio. Sure. I think that you need to trust the producer, and if you're going to choose a producer, don't fight them on everything and argue with them about stuff that you're paying them to help you with. And that happens a lot. You know, you'll get hired to do a record and then they'll just fight you on everything. And it's like, well, why did you hire me? Like, you're wasting both of our time at this point, you know. Don't hire someone unless you 100% trust their opinion and trust their ability. Otherwise, you're better off doing it yourself until you get to that level where you can afford to hire the person you truly believe in. And that trust between the artist and the producer is it goes both ways because I listen more than I speak in sessions. So, but the artists trust me just to get the job done because they know what I will give them. So it has to kind of go both ways. But yeah, I never understood that hire somebody and then fight with them the whole time. And luckily it hasn't happened to me too much, but I've seen it happen a lot when I would engineer for producers and the artists would just be Same. combative the whole time. And I'm like, why did you hire this amazing producer who you're not listening to? That's happened with some people I've worked with where it's like they wanted somebody else's sound. Why Why did you hire this guy? Like they wanted to sound like some other dude who's making big records in the scene. Why didn't you just hire that guy that's making those big records in the scene? You can afford it. Why are you here? Yeah, exactly. I never understood that. <laughs> well, people just make strange decisions, I guess. Yeah, I guess some musicians don't understand that a certain sound you know, if a producer mixer is known for a certain sound, that's that's not the gear they're using. It's their brain. It's their brain and their ears. Correct. You can't recreate that. You're, you can't go to somebody else and get somebody else's sound. Exactly. So, all right, last question here is from, man, I can't pronounce this last name, so I'm not going to even try. William, no last name. <laughs> what was the inflection point in your career in which the level of your client's basically the quality of your clients started to level up. Like when did you start working with bands that you're really into and are major bands? 
Probably after I did the first Steel Panther record, that kind of sucked me back into rock and metal because before that, like I said earlier, I'd been doing a lot of pop music, working under producers, engineering, editing, mixing, you know, for other people basically. And then I had the opportunity to, to produce and mix the first Steel Panther record. And it kind of reignited my love for recording rock and roll and, and hard rock and live bands and it had been a few years since I got to do that and I had done it here and there my first few years in LA but a lot of it was pop music so after I did Steel Panther I went I think I went right into the first Anthrax record I did with them and it just kind of kept going from there because people were liking what I was doing and the phone just started to ring a lot more for rock hard rock and some metal so and that still kind of just continued on to be honest I that's obviously the genre I work in the most but I still do other things, and people from my past will pop up. I just, you know, the Swedish pop guys literally called me yesterday to, to mix something that sounds like Billie Eilish. So I'll mix that soon as well. So, you know, I think it just depends on what you love doing. And I love making rock records, so I focused on that for a long time. How did the Steel Panther thing come up if you were working on other kind of stuff? What led to them wanting to give you a shot? When I was working with Wilson Phillips on their reunion record in like 2003 or four, I met a drummer named Peter Burke. And Peter was the original, original drummer in Steel Panther when they did the Danger Kitty TV commercial. And they were playing the Viper Room for like 100 people back in like 1998 or something. And so he was friends with all those guys. And he had a rock band in LA called Paperback Hero who were really good. And they would open for Steel Panther at the Key Club like every other Monday. They were like the staple opening band. So I did a few songs with them that turned out really great. And then they played those demos for the singer in Steel Panther. And he was like, holy shit, this sounds great. Can I meet this guy? Because we want to actually record some original material. And that's how I ended up doing Feel the Steel. And we did initially did six songs like Death Doll But Metal and Community Property. And then they got the Universal deal and we did the rest of the record. So yeah, it was just, again, who you know, meeting people who then meet other people who then introduce you to other people and so on and so forth. And how they feel about your work. And then at, eventually it comes down to your work, but at the beginning it's all relationships. So what I try to tell people, without relationships, it doesn't matter how good your work is. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen because nope. you, need, <laughs> you need people to say yes to you in the world or you're not going to have anything to work on. The relationships are the biggest, most important part of it. And that's all assuming that you're good at what you do. If you're not good at what you do, the relationships are important, but you're not going to get very far because people are just not going to work with you. But if you're semi-good at what you do and you're really nice to work with and easy to get along with, then you're going to be busy. A closing thought, I just want to say this. I think, you know how people say that production is super oversaturated? Tough business to get into? Yeah. I think there's some truth to that, but I think that that's kind of bullshit too because of what you just said. The amount of people who actually are good and also know how to hang out with people are actually really rare. Like there's yeah. not that many people who actually have both of those things going on. There's a lot of people who are trying to get into it. That's true. But I don't think that those people are competition. Like no. if you're cool and you know what you're doing, there's a very, very short list of people who are also cool and know what they're doing. I agree with you on that. And there is actually a lot of producers and mixers that are very hard to get along with and have notorious personalities, 
but they're still successful because their work is so excellent, you know? And so you can't deny that, but, you know, you hear the rumors and you hear the stories and... But I think they're the exception. They are definitely the exception. They're the exception. Because a lot of the people that I know and work with, and I'm, and I'm friends with lots of producers and mixers, and they're all generally pretty easygoing people and laid back and, you know, everybody's got their opinion, but, you know, it's the personality side, as you said, is so important. And yeah, saturation is one thing, but... That's when being really good or great, you just stand out. You know, there there could be a million producers in America, but a hundred of them can probably make a world class record. So, you got you want to try and be part of that hundred. And about fifty of them can even hang out in a room with other people. There you go. Exactly. So yeah. you know that that nails the personality side of it. So yeah, you're you know it's. But and that can be said of any creative environment, probably film directors too, you know, a lot of them are insane, mm-hmm. but they're so great and but they're hard to work with. And there's a lot of producers you'll notice only work with a band once, but that one record is huge. And if you look at band yeah. certain bands especially, look at their catalog and look who the producers were. And if they worked with a different producer on every record, there's probably a reason because A, they want to be creative and try different stuff and not get locked in. But the producers they worked with absolutely beat the crap out of them and made an amazing record. And then the band was like, fuck that, I'm not working with that dude again. Well, I think with movie directors too, you hear the stories about someone like Stanley Kubrick, but more often than not with great directors like like a Christopher Nolan or... Martin Scorsese, like everyone that works with them says that they're demanding, but super easy to work with. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between being demanding and being an asshole and yeah. And being a maniac. Yeah. And I've seen both. So, you know, and the guys that were an asshole aren't working anymore, at least from the guys that I mentored under that are say 10 years older than me that are like in their mid fifties, they're just not working very rarely the ones that were assholes, I mean, because that attitude and that scream approach in the studio and and being a drill sergeant, that just doesn't work anymore. And we don't have the time or the budgets or the, you know... Patience. (laughs) Probably the cocaine they were all doing, you know, to to get through those types of records and patience, exactly. So those days have definitely are over. So, and, you know, those guys aren't working. But the ones that had as you say, like the great personality or the easy to work with sort of attitude, they're still around. Yeah. Okay. So I've done, I forget which episode number this is and like 70 nail the mix episodes. And in those five years, I've only encountered one dickhead. Wow. That's pretty good. Only one dickhead came on the podcast once. And it was so early on that I was shocked I didn't know what to say. I would have just put him in his place if it happened now. But <laughs> it was a pretty legendary dude, and he was just such a fucking dick. But dude, that's the only time it's happened in five years, and we've like we've had a lot of people on, and they're all people who have done very well for themselves. And the thing that they tend to have in common, you know, they all have different aesthetics, different visions for everything, different career paths, but they're all generally pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I I think for the most part, you just you're not going to make it very far with that bad attitude. And the ones that have, as you said, are rare. The bad attitude and successful is only because they made a couple really huge records, so people put up with them. And if they still make huge records, then I guess you just keep putting up with them. And I will say that you're also right. This dude is also older. I'd say he's like in his sixties, so he comes from that era. Something about that era, man, people were a lot meaner (laughs) in the studio. 
they lose their patience for good because they made so many records with so many knuckleheads <laughs> in between the great people that it's really hard to hang on to that patience for decades. You know, I think when you start off, you have a lot of it and then you have a little less and a little less and a little less to the point where you just can't be bothered anymore. And <laughs> you just turn into cranky old man. And, you know, if I'm being honest, one of the reasons that I stopped producing and mixing and pursuing that and I decided to do this instead was that was happening to me. Sure. And this was like in my early 30s. I was starting to notice I'm starting to hate the bands like <laughs> that patience like, I can't imagine being in my mid-40s and just continuing down this path of hate. Like, no. So, yeah, I get it. Well, that's why you got to take breaks. And that's why I do a lot of mixing, you know, you get because then you start to miss being in the studio with people. And even if it can frustrate you sometimes, those breaks are good. But it's tough. I just always constantly remind myself that the band might not have seen all the annoying things in the studio happen that I've seen. And I got to remember that this for them, this might be the first time. So I got to And be, it's not their fault. Right, I got to just be patient with them yeah. and explain to them, you know, if they're feeling a certain way about something why that might be the case and that, you know, I've seen it happen a lot, this is why blah blah and if if they listen and get it, great if they don't, then I just have to grin and bear it and kind of sort of sit through it and wait till they figure it out on their own. I will say conversely, I have experienced bands coming into the studio who had basically studio PTSD from coming in with a shitty producer. I don't mean shitty as in quality. Sometimes they'd come from really awesome producers who were just maniac tyrants and they would bring that baggage into the session and then expect it to go the same way. So then it would be a, a situation of having to get them to understand that you're not in the same place. You're not dealing with the same people. Like, it's a whole new situation. That's hard to break, yeah, for sure. And, you know, whenever bands leave us the end of a record with me, oftentimes they'll say, wow, that was really fun and one of the most easiest experiences I've ever had in the studio. Okay, mission accomplished. Like, that's what I try and do. Make it easy and fun. It's still hard work, but there's no reason to be a dick about it or yell and scream. Just, you know, as long as everybody's trying their fucking best and giving me their all, it's cool. And, you know, leave, leave here with a smile on your face and excited about what you just created. Well, I think that's an excellent closing statement. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure catching up with you again. It's been a long time. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.